Let's do it. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 6 of the Xbox Expansion Pass, recorded on November 10th, 2019. I am your host, Luke Lore, the Insipid Ghost, and in this episode, we have got a fun one for you. We're going to examine what we know of XO19 as it approaches its big day, and we'll discuss the Elite 2 controller, and then we're very fortunate in the back half of the episode to speak to Edward Rowe, who is a programmer, designer, and artist over at Red Blue Games, about his upcoming game, Sparklight. It's part of the ID at Xbox Pro program and one for fans of A Link to the Past and Rogue Legacy to absolutely take a look at. But before we get to any and all of that, it's time to talk about XO19 with 24 confirmed playable titles there at the show. Gamers are going to get a chance to take a look at a bunch of unreleased games as well as kind of some of the old mainstays that might be bringing new content to the table. Unreleased stuff like Doom Eternal, which was meant to come out this year and has since been delayed. Uh, I'm excited to see what they might show for Doom Eternal and what might be different about it. What it is, they, if, they, if they'll focus on what they improved or what they're taking their time on. Maybe release uh, at least a statement or an indication as to why they felt the need to delay it. Uh, they've talked about matching standards, and that's a very good buzzword PR line. You know, We want it to be up to the standards that gamers expect. But what do they mean by that? I'm curious if we'll get any insight into that. We've got several confirmed studios that are going to be there. In Exile will be there, most likely Wasteland 3, I'm sure. Mojang will be there, Minecraft Dungeons, Ninja Theory. Very interested to see what Ninja Theory is working on. And if we get a site into what they're working on outside of Bleeding Edge. Bleeding Edge I saw at E3 this past year and... I don't quite know what to make of it. It looked fine. It looked cool. Kind of like a hero shooter-esque type game where you multiplayer only and you're battling out but I don't know if that's even a correct impression it was just kind of what I was able to gather from being there and watching it played uh, but, but you never know you never know I, Ninja Theory is, is one of those studios that punches above their weight on the regular so I'm very curious to see if Bleeding Edge will turn some heads and if they've brought anything else to share over at XO19 it's got to be tough though it has to be tough planning an event like XO19 uh, ahead of Scarlet Reveals whenever that's going to come to pass in early 2020 most likely and after E3 which was only a few months ago and still maintaining hype for your brand and celebrating with your European fans over in London gotta be tough gotta be tough but back to who and what is going to be there uh Tunic is going to be there. The Zelda Fox himself is going to be on display. I'm super excited to see what we're going to have out of that indie darling. We've seen him at lots of different shows over at FanFest this past year. There was a good old booth. Got to watch it being played. My friend Sean played it. Uh, it was a really neat thing to see uh, this much-coveted game. And I want to know when it's coming out. Let me know. Let me know. Also, quick quick shout-out. Cyber Shadow. Cyber Shadow is a game that should be on your radar. I'm, I'm anxious to see what comes of that. But other confirmed games are going to be at the show. Microsoft Flight Simulator is going to be on display. Now, that is a game that may not even be a game. It may not even be for people that listen to this type of, of show, that, that invest themselves into the Xbox ecosystem. Maybe they're just you know, casual Windows fans, and they see the, the words Microsoft Flight Simulator on their computer, and they think nostalgically back to those uh, days of yore in the late 90s, and they're like, you know, I miss that. Maybe I'll check this out. And then try to bring people, people in there. One thing's for sure about Microsoft Flight Simulator. It is meant to appeal to a different demographic, but it's also on display a number of different technologies, cloud-based technologies as it brings real-world uh, environments and weather effects into the game. Very anxious to see how this technology, if you'll forgive the pun, pilots itself into other games that might be perhaps more relevant to people that listen to this show. Will we see you know, this type of cloud-based service technology that's, that's bringing in information and data the way it does? Will we see this make its way into Project X Cloud or later iterations of it? It's one of those games that could have a rippling effect throughout the, the Xbox game studios, but not perhaps be the one that brings the attention straight to it. So something to look at there. Uh, apart from In Exile, Mojang, and Ninja Theory, Obsidian will also be there. You have to wonder if they're going to be showing DLC for the Outer Worlds or just talking about fixes and updates they're bringing to uh, the game. My money's on DLC or some sort of expanded content because while it is very early after launch, 
this is a chance for Microsoft to celebrate a coveted studio that is now under their umbrella. And while it did release on many platforms and lots of gamers are getting to play it, which is a good thing, I'm very curious to see how they will move about going forward in celebrating the game, in publicizing the game, and what they want to do for Obsidian and the brand of Outer Worlds. It makes sense, of course, that we're also going to see Rare there with probably plenty of Sea of Thieves content on display. We know there's an arena event going on right now, and it seems to me that Sea of Thieves has developed and coveted a wonderful niche audience that continues to grow. I know when I jumped in and post-anniversary update, I, I fell in love with the game, and I really do enjoy it. They did a great job with kind of taking that initial launch piece that was so... Uh, fractured and had so many great ideas but not a, not a lot of content for lack of a better term and they have brought with it its own campaign its own stories uh, and more accessibility options for gamers that want shorter gameplay sessions and longer gameplay sessions they've got an arena event going on right now but the reason I bring up Rare specifically and, and spotlight it on them is that they are kind of working with Delala Studios to bring out the new Battletoads game and whether Microsoft wants this to be a huge title or not uh, it's certainly going to be a small one, but there's going to be a lot of eyes on it because it bears the name Battletoads. That's a lot of pressure. Played the game over at E3, had a blast with it, really enjoyed what I played. It's going to be a 2D sprite-based, although not exactly, brawler that is going to be nostalgic for fans to pick up, play for a bit, and move on. The difficulty's there, I'm sure, but a lot of, a lot of pressure for Dalala to kind of mainstay this brand. And I'm sure Rare will be there to kind of help celebrate with that. It, I'll be more shocked if we don't find out a release date for Battletoads. That would be more surprising to me. Pie in the Sky, I know I've got a couple listener questions that talk about truly big or unexpected news. Uh, I have to wonder if perhaps we'll see what, what else Rare is working on. Is this the time that we see you know what they've been building that second and third team to, to work on? Uh, and I think the answer is no. I think you save that for your Scarlet reveal. Nonetheless, you got to wonder. It's always fun to kind of speculate, but speculating logically, it is unlikely we would see anything beyond Sea of Thieves and, and Battletoads working with Delala there. Age of Empires 2, Minecraft Dungeons, Gears 5, Forza Lego, Halo MCC will also all be on display. Now, Age of Empires 2 is one that I think a lot of people have their eyes on, and I'm very glad to see it. And it seems to me that they're bringing back and celebrating Age of Empires quite well. I watched the revamped version when we were there this past summer. It looks great. They're working on, on bringing this brand back as they should, as they work to kind of build out their catalog of games through Xbox Game Studios. They want to celebrate any genres that have perhaps not been touched on well enough by the group. And Age of Empires 2 looks to be great. Minecraft Dungeons looks dope. I don't really care for Minecraft. It's not in my wheelhouse. Great game, just not one that's, you know, for Ghost. But when I look at it, it's something that's approachable. It's something that I can pick up, play, have a good time, stream, and have conversations with. And I don't have to think too much. And I'm a, I'm a fan of that. I do like games where I'm able to just stream it and kind of turn my brain off and talk to the chat play through, have a good time, and not invest hugely into a story. You know, very fundamentally different than, say, a big open-world narrative or something where I'm choosing dialogue or where I have to build and plan out giant landscapes like in, in Minecraft proper. So Minecraft, Minecraft Dungeons has my attention. As far as the Gears 5 and Forza Lego, I don't know why Forza Lego would be there other than to simply celebrate Playground and show off this is a local studio or a studio that's in the area, and we want to kind of look in at kind of the celebrations that we've had with Forza, because Forza Horizon 4 is incredible, but Forza's take, taken quite a bit of time off, and I think that's a good thing, but why list them there? It's, you know, it just makes you wonder. Gears 5, I hope that with Gears 5 being on display, it's not just a, hey, we're showing off the, the title. I hope it's also like, hey, here are the characters that are coming. We've got new characters on the way. They don't cost $18 per, because the economy in Gears 5 is certainly something to be uh, studied and examined if you are out of that loop or you're not really into the multiplayer aspect there are a lot of conversations surrounding how mm, let's say post-launch content should be rolled out to gamers and what should and shouldn't be paid for and the prices that are appropriate for it there's a massive amount of content included in the game even if you get it on game pass you get the ultimate edition there's tons of stuff there but what they what they are selling for premium currency in their store is a bit borked and it's a bit frustrating to see so i wonder if you know are we going to see more spartans are we going to see more carryover characters from other games uh will we see more brands being represented a lot of terminator stuff in the game right now I'm hopeful that we see more Spartans, 
I'm hopeful that we see more celebrated game studios aspects. Do we get, you know, like cog armor that, that bears a sea of thieves emblem and such? I like that cross-pollination, but I also hope we see more Gears characters. That's what I would like to be on display, and I need them to price it appropriately. I need it to be unlockable in-game. They're doing this totem system. That's, that's what we need. You need to treat your fan base well if you would like to continue to see them return, particularly while you're under a subscription model like Xbox Game Pass. And then lastly, kind of listed in kind of the big major titles is Master Chief Collection. We know that Halo Reach is coming to it. That's a huge thing for a lot of Halo fans to see brought into that spectrum and realm. We know it's also going to be hitting PC, but they're doing it in stages, which is nice to hear. It sounds to me like Halo Master Chief Collection will get a full-on relaunch come Scarlet. Sounds to me like that's kind of what they're aiming for is that the final product will be their day one Scarlet. Uh, but for now, in the short term, Halo Reach is expected this year into the Master Chief Collection, which is probably a good thing. can't imagine it be a bad thing, really. You know, if they delay it a bit and they push it out and let it kind of tie into the marketing realm of when they talk more about Halo Infinite, a lot of questions there. A lot of questions indeed. There's also some redacted information about what we'll see at XO19, and that of course leads to speculation and predictions, and this brings us to a listener question from Hypecaster, Mr. Antonio Guillen himself. He says, dare Microsoft reveal something truly big or unexpected, or will they continue to play it safe like an E3 and hold their cards to play next to the new, new console launch? He predicts an xCloud official release date and price available December 1st. Uh, let's think here, Antonio. I, I do think that they, we see some announcements, but think AA category. Think something that is not groundbreaking, not ground-earth shattering. But they want to use XO19 to continue to bring themselves further into the European market that is so well dominated by Sony. In fact, outside of North America, uh, it's very, very clear that Microsoft has some branding issues. They need to continue to branch out. So I'm hopeful to see that we see some AA announcements, that we celebrate the studios previously mentioned. But I do think they hold most of their cards close to the chest. Smaller announcements are okay, bringing Halo Reach in. DLC for Outer Worlds, maybe you've got a new event in Sea of Thieves. Maybe you see Ninja Theory's next game. But the major player stuff, the big stuff, like what Rare is, is working on next, which you see uh, Halo Infinite stuff from, I think you hold on to that till your Scarlet reveal. And as far as your prediction for an xCloud official release date and price, and you think it's available de December 1st, I would... I would push back on that a bit. In fact, I would say they don't need a release date for xCloud. They just need to continue rolling out those invites to people that sign up and are interested, perfecting that technology as they go. And as far as price, my hope, my prediction, and I'm being very serious here, is that there is none. If you have Xbox, if you have an Xbox account, if you have purchased a game in Xbox. My hope is that eventually you don't buy xCloud. xCloud is just a service that's available to you for free, but in order to play most Xbox games, it's likely you need Game Pass Ultimate or Xbox Live Gold or Game Pass. And so that is going to be what they do. It's an avenue to reach gamers. And so I don't think xCloud exclusively has any type of price associated with it, but I do think that uh, it'll become available more and more and more. And as far as an official release date, no need to rush that. With Stadia so close on the horizon and Stadia getting this kind of strange marketing stumbles as they go and they've lost kind of major players like, like Doom Eternal that's not there at launch anymore, I would imagine that there's no urge and, and need to push xCloud. Let it, let, it, let it continue to brew amongst those that have signed up because those are your interested parties and those are the people that are going to bring to the forefront and have conversations with their audiences. Now, to address kind of my final hopes for what it is we see at XO19, I would love to see the purchase of one more studio to kind of fill the gap in the catalog. Maybe it's a new FPS that, that's not named Halo. Maybe it's a JRPG. But really, I'd like that studio to be located outside of North America. Continue spreading the brand of Xbox beyond that of what is established. Uh, it's no secret that Xbox struggles in Japan mightily. So seeing something that could appeal to that audience but rolled out differently than, say, the Blue Dragon and the early Xbox 360 initiatives, I'd love to see that take place. We know Latin America has a strong Xbox presence, but perhaps allow yourselves to be recognized in other markets. 
there's no doubt and it'll come up yet again the chinese market is going to be influencing games and gamers particularly microsoft in a bit but my hope simply put i want release dates for battletoads i want one more studio acquisition to be discussed uh, and shown that does fill a gap there and hopefully you know represented somewhere else and then as i said earlier appropriate level dlc announcements for various X xgs uh, titles those are my hopes uh, but who knows, maybe we'll get surprised. The real deal here is to watch how they navigate an inside Xbox and navigate a celebration of the brand after this past E3 and then prior to a Scarlet launch. There, that's, the, that's the story here. That is what we should all be watching for. If you're looking for major game announcements, you are likely to walk away disappointed. But who knows? Moving on. Guys, I want to talk about accessibility for just a moment. The Outer Worlds. The Outer Worlds has been a game that I have been playing. It's outside my standard genre wheelhouse. It's not a game that I would have bought myself, but I am loving that I have the access to it. And I'm playing through it. I'm enjoying the shooting, not so much the talking, having a good time with it. And then a tweet caught my eye, and it really kind of opened me up into a whole new set of talking points. Somebody tweeted Josh Sawyer, the studio design director, about something or another, and he responded with a PSA, and he says, quote, the Outer Worlds does not have a colorblind mode because it was designed to be playable without color information, i.e. color information is redundant with other indicators. Tim Kaine, one of the directors, has a form of colorblindness that approaches monochromacy, end quote. I love that. I love the idea that a studio, without needing a colorblind mode, was able to create something and that you don't need color information to navigate and play their game, and that's awesome. That's really cool. If you did need color information, I love that they would have thought about the idea of needing colorblind modes. I think as we make games more accessible, which is part of kind of Xbox's brand at this point with the, the adaptive controller, with some of the amazing things that happen with the Elite controller, I love it. I think it's great. Now, I will say the Outer Worlds, they need... they are working to increase things like text size because there's no reason for that to be small. You'll find out later on in our interview in the back half of the show that even Red Blue Games, a smaller indie studio, is aware and needs to work on some of their accessibility options. That's something that they are focusing on. And I think that's a fantastic conversation that we continue to get to have. Each game loads up and it is more accessible than games 10 years prior. Even the much frustrating Ghost Recon Breakpoint launched with, with menu navigation systems that were super easy. Gears did that as well. Love it. Makes me very, very happy. And when I get to this Elite 2 controller, I am stoked to talk to you about accessibility. In fact, I think that's what we're going to roll into right next. Guys, I popped open the Elite 2 controller on, on Monday when it arrived at my home. And I didn't play with it. I opened it. I looked at it. It was gorgeous, but it was intimidating. There were so many moving parts, so many pieces of the puzzle. And frankly, sometimes when I'm tired, I just don't want to learn something new. I want to just jump on, play, have a good time. And I have that that Gears console with that cake controller. And so I was able to enjoy gaming and not, not worry, but I would continue to look at it. Well, a few days ago, I finally took the plunge. I broke it out. And I started messing around with it. Interchangeable pieces are intimidating. So if this and this was my first Elite controller, I'd never owned one, and I had only used them at E3. And so to be magnetizing and DNet magnetizing buttons and paddles and and adjusting tensions and, and different uh, trigger distances, it was a little intimidating at first. But I would tell you this: if that sounds scary to you, five minutes, five minutes, and you will know everything you need to know because it is so user friendly. You want to swap out joysticks, they magnetize on and off. You want to adjust how much range you get, how much tension you get in the joysticks, in the distance in the triggers. Super simple ways to do it. Popping paddles on and off of the controller made it super easy to kind of remap things. It was one of those moments where I was scared I was going to have to learn a whole new OS type thing. If you've ever picked up somebody else's phone and you're like, oh, I don't know if I can do it and you begin to kind of play around with it and you realize it's super easy, that was the Elite 2 controller. Now, everything about this package was premium, and I mean like everything. Got the box, my wife, it's my birthday present for my wife, so that was a really cool thing to, to kind of get it early. And everything about it felt premium from tearing apart the packaging, opening it up, and looking at it. It was just presented in such a gorgeous way. Everything fits and has a slot. There's nothing that can be jostled around. The case is its own charging stand. 
That's super cool. You can charge it while it's in the case, charge it while it's on a separate stand, indicator lights, profile settings. You can map it to be, so I'm a big gears player. I can map it for gears where I have paddles letting me select A and B and X and not have to use face buttons, thus saving me time off the sticks. That's really, really cool. I adjusted the tension on the triggers for when I was playing Call of Duty, so I didn't have to pull down on the left trigger to aim down sights and the right trigger down as far to shoot making my reaction time faster, which for an old man like me was super cool. Now for a $180 piece of hardware, it absolutely better work and it absolutely better be amazing. And man, did it live up to it. I kid you not. I couldn't believe that I spent this much money on something, birthday present or not. It just, it kind of got to me a little. I started feeling that guilt, but man, more and more I use it. It's just comfortable and it truly is the best controller I've ever held or used in my life. By far, 40 hours of rechargeable battery, USB-C, six different thumbsticks included with it. I mean, multiple paddle types. It's it's wild to think that this is going to elevate my gaming experience. And moreover, fantastic story popped up in my Mixer channel. Someone was over there hanging out on Mixer. We're talking about the Elite 2 controller and how great it was, how accessible it is. And it came to light that this person was a one-handed gamer. And because they could program the paddles, move the sticks around, adjust tensions, gaming was then more accessible to him. He was able to play more games and with less hassle, with more ease than ever before. And this, coupled with the accessibility controller, it, it warms my heart and it makes me ecstatic to hear that more people are able to play games because of these accessibility initiatives, because they're able to program and map things themselves. That is what gaming is about. That is what games are for, to bring people together. And the idea that the Elite 2 controller is another step for that, it is absolutely what I want to hear. Another interesting piece that is, while it's not in the news, it is something I want to call attention to, is it's kind of flown under the radar. Xbox insiders are now testing console streaming. Uh, and if you're unsure what I mean by that and you're wondering, wait, don't we do that with xCloud? Uh, the answer is no. Think more remote play from PS4 to Vita, where you're playing on a local system, like in your home over Wi-Fi, and it's streaming to your device and you're manipulating and playing it that way. That's a fundamentally different thing than xCloud, but on the gamer side, in principle, is very, very similar. I loved playing my PlayStation 4 with my Vita. I really enjoyed that function of remote play because then it was suddenly it was cross save and, and at the time you had to work your way through like different levels of do you buy the game on, on the hardware, the local hardware unit, do you buy it on your handheld, what are you buying it on, this, that or the other. Well with console streaming, it's just on the console and you're sending the information to your device, streaming on your phone, your tablet, etc. If that's out to Xbox Insiders now and they're working and testing through it, you have to wonder how long until that becomes a mainstay in just standard gaming for Xbox One. Do you wait until Scarlet? Do you use console streaming as a Scarlet selling feature? And the answer is yes, you do. Uh, but I love that that's there. I love that it's it's done well and that it's it, they're kind of working it out. And if you can do it on an Xbox One X, imagine how, how simple and well it will be done on a Scarlet. I was looking at uh, some pretty interesting numbers. Basically, PS5 and Scarlet are very, very similar boxes, but the idea is they want to push 10.7 teraflops. If you don't know what a teraflop is, welcome to the rest of us. No one actually does. That's What was interesting about it is that's more than twice as powerful as an Xbox One X and more than 10 times as powerful as an Xbox One S. And as I heard that, I was like, wait, what? Wait a minute. Back up. And I reread it. 10 times as powerful as an Xbox One S and twice as powerful as an Xbox One X, that math just kind of blew my mind. It was surprising to me that in this generation, the Xbox One X could be so much more powerful than the S. And it made sense. I was like, well, wait, we're not getting huge graphical leaps. It's not like you can't play the same game. And then it occurred to me, wait, 4K is absolutely that. The amount of information you need for 4K, for ray tracing, for uh, extremely impressive sound design, it does make sense. You do need that level of power. And to see that that happened within this generation, it makes me wonder all the more curiously, how does that impact xCloud? How does that impact Scarlet? How does Stadia combat that? Will they be able to handle it? Does PlayStation 5 adjust for that? Because the PS4 uh, Pro is nowhere near as powerful as the Xbox One X. None of that equates to sales, or at least it doesn't for the majority of the market, and that's its own level of frustration, or its own level of just, you know, well-done, well-made marketing on Sony's end. But it was a cool kind of thought process for me to go through and just kind of examine it as far as a think tank uh, goes. Guys, 
I want to talk about one more thing before we move into listener questions. We've had Control. We've had Borderlands 3. We've had Call of Duty. We've had Gears 5. All the sports games have kind of hit release. It seems like we've kind of had our season short of Jedi Fallen Order. And man, is it close. And goodness gracious, am I so excited for it. Jedi Fallen Order looks amazing. I've done such a turnaround on it. But now that this gaming season is done, it's time for people to really start looking back over the year. I say it's done, but you understand my meaning there. Now we look back and we determine, all right, what's our game of the year? What are we talking about? What are you focused on? What does game of the year mean? And as those conversations start to come up, I would love it if you would tweet at me, uh, at InsipidGhost over on the Twitters, and let me know what you think the game of the year is and how you go about judging it. That's really what I'm interested in because our own personal game of the year is what you enjoyed, what you think is best versus favorite versus more fun. How do you decide it? That's a personal choice. But more importantly, more fascinatingly, what campaigns did you like? Why did you like them? I was thinking back to it. Goodness, I loved Control's campaign. Goodness, I loved Gear's campaign. The Modern Warfare campaign was wonderful. The multiplayer experiences in some of those games are, are also fantastic, but then you have economies that can kind of muddle things, and I think about Apex Legends as my game of the year right now, and how I didn't really have to pay for it, but I, paid, I did pay for some stuff in there because I wanted to support Respawn. And then we have Jedi Fallen Order on the horizon. What really happens after that in 2019? Are there any other major players in the AAA space? I don't think so, unless my mind has gone blank at this point. I know we have some AA stuff coming. Plenty of indie goodness coming. The you know sales will will bring uh, some things back to attention. I know I'm stoked to snag Borderlands 3, which you know I'm, I'm getting courtesy of listeners, which is amazing. But I'm really curious. And then we have the Game Awards coming up in a few weeks. I mean. Oh, goodness gracious, please show me a Batman game. Show me a Batman game. I don't care if it's Rocksteady or WB Montreal. Give me some goodness there. Give me some Batman. Whew. All right. Moving into some listener questions for today. This first one comes from Justin Wood. Uh, he said, what studios do you think Xbox will purchase within the next year? What's your dream purchase? Uh, and what, what dream purpose would you like to see happen? Oh, man, this is tough. This question comes up a lot. And I don't know who's likely anymore because I think they've snagged a lot of the likely candidates that would have been snagged at this point. Moon Studios pops up, you know, Ori, MDHR, Cuphead. Those are the ones that that people consistently kind of throw out into the ether. And I feel like that would have happened already if, if that was an option that was on the table. But those are the likely ones, along with what I would love to see, Playful Studios. Super Lucky's Tale. They just put out new Super Lucky's Tale on Switch, and uh, Lucky's Tale was, was a great game. Well, let me rephrase. Lucky's Tale was a game that I loved. It was a solid 3D platformer that had a borked launch over... Borked is my word this episode. Uh, it had a, a frustrating launch for Xbox gamers because it launched day and date with the Xbox One X, and it was X-enhanced, but it's not a game that puts any of that on display. And also, you know, Mario Odyssey it had launched kind of around that time. So that was a two-year-ago 2017 launch. I would love to see, you know, Microsoft wrap up Playful Studios and make Super Lucky a mascot going into the Scarlet Generation. It's out there on Switch. People are seeing Lucky, and they're finding out the game is actually legitimately fun and approachable for families, and it's, there's a lot to it, and they've really revamped stuff. If you bought up Playful Studios, then you've got kind of that kitty mascot platformer uh, that you could maybe do something with uh, separately from maybe another approachable kitty game like Viva Pinata for Scarlet and bring more gamers in. I would love to see Playful. Uh, and then like my, uh, my pie in the sky, buy Rocksteady. Make them tell me some information. Let me know. Tell me stuff. Must have it. Edward Varnell writes in, and he says, How much damage can Microsoft do if they slip up once again? And can Phil Spencer fix it quicker if it ever happens? And I wasn't quite sure what Edward meant, so we DM'd back and forth so I could kind of nail his question down. And the premise of what he's asking is, if they're promising something like 60 frames per second and 4K on the regular, uh, and they don't deliver it, or if they have hardware issues out the gate similar to the Red Ring, you know, can they survive another troubled launch the way they... I think they really did recover after the Xbox One launch, the bad messaging and the the ugly aesthetics of the Xbox One original. His question is, in, in basic premise is, can they survive another another troubled launch? And the answer is, I don't know, Edward. I think so. I think so. I think you only get one launch. You only get one chance to make a first impression, and that is whenever it gets into consumers' hands, regardless of you know true early access and whatnot. But um, as far as Phil Spencer being able to save them or whatnot, I think we need to pull that back, that mentality back a bit. Phil Spencer is an incredible voice in the industry, and as so many people are changing and we're le- kind of seeing the old guard of, of – 
established faces leave, you know, exit Nintendo, exit Sony, and, and new faces coming about. Phil Spencer's kind of been our mainstay. We saw that transition earlier for Microsoft than we did for Sony and Nintendo. But it's not a one-man job, and I think he'd be the first to tell you that. I think Microsoft has to be very particular and control the way they roll out their new product, their new messaging. They've talked about hardware being uh, important, cloud being important, the catalog of games being important. So much so that you know Aaron Greenberg said responded to somebody on Twitter, you know, like, "What are we going to see at XO?" And his response was, "Games, games, games." Well, that's what it needs to be. It should always be games. You're a gaming company, and all the other stuff is we take it for granted because it's supposed to be there. I'm supposed to have Netflix. I'm supposed to have subscription abilities to get to to different aspects of streaming and whatnot. Yes, yes, yes. But you need games, and they have to be very particular about controlling their message. So the 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 premise of the question is, can they survive a troubled launch? I, I don't know. They've had they've had a two troubled launches that they navigated well out of. You know, the 360 Red Ring of Death, and then they were just fine. Uh, by the end of it, they had the the ugly original Xbox with its you know hey digital only cloud based yada 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 it didn't work well the bad messaging this is how you trade games they survived it and they revamped their hardware they've done a great job at recovering and they're making money which is what you want to see it doesn't matter about first second or third anymore because the install base of of people spending dollars is is still there I don't have a good answer to your true question but it I find as I think think my way through this and and talk my way through it. I think they absolutely can. I don't want to see it happen, though. And it would scare me to death if there was a troubled launch because how? what does it take for somebody to jump ship? You know, if you're if the mind share is so strongly Sony Nintendo, then it, the onus is on Microsoft to prove that they are in the game. And they've done a lot of that. Man, they have done a lot of it, purchasing so many studios and whatnot. But we'll see. Great question, Edward. One that I want to reexamine after we know more about Scarlet. Our last question before we get to our Sparklight interview comes from Joel Brooks, who uh, gives me an article to take a look at. And essentially, the article from Engadget uh, talks about China as it is now going to introduce regulations to rein in gaming habits for younger people. They're going to be imposing restrictions on how long gamers can game, uh, how many how many hours and minutes a day, depending on you know, what time of year it is and, and what they should be working on. They're going to be addressing gaming disorder, which is something that has been kind of coming up from the World Health Organization. And what's interesting about it, why this, you know, shows up into our news segments is that China has become a market where we've seen something as recently as Blizzard adjust their business philosophies for, their moral principles for, because of the huge install base and the ability to bring in money from that market. If companies are adjusting to accommodate that new incredible market and as consoles become more available due to regulation changes there or if consoles become more expensive here due to that, these new regulations might play a, play a big part into what we look at and how we approach gaming over here and how companies respond to it. So I think it's more of an emerging story than one we can ma play major comment on now, but it does bring about a number of questions, particularly in the wake of something like the BlizzCon frustrations and the Blizzard frustrations, to say the least. But great question, Joel, and something that I think we should all keep a look on is just how China, with its massive uh, ability to bring in dollars for, its, for consumers and how that can influence the markets, uh, something to keep an eye on to say the least. Oh, also worth mentioning, they're putting in rules for how much gamers can pay for things like outfits and DLC and, and cosmetics. And, ooh, goodness, after the loot crate mm, regulations that, that were introduced over in Europe and then to see China doing something like this, it looks like governments are taking a notice and that comes when money and revenue is to be generated from it. And you better believe that as they can approach uh, that revenue generation, either through taxes or something else, and I recognize that might be kind of a heavier topic to, to think about, but when you have revenue and dollars that are coming into to your ecosystem, it makes sense that governments would take notice of that and, and have that discussion as we become more of a global market. As we close out the show, everyone, I want to thank all of you for reaching out on Twitter at InsipidGhost and letting me know what you think of the show, how to improve it, how to make it better, for sharing the show, for sending those retweets, for letting people know. It's really uh, humbling to see so many of you offer your support. Thank you so much for, for rating it on iTunes or your various platforms, clicking like on Podbean and all that stuff. It makes such a difference to get constructive feedback, to see people sharing the episodes. It means the absolute world. 
You can support me over on Mixer at mixer.com slash insipidghost with a follow, a host. But thank you so much for all of that, everybody. We're going to transition now into the interview with Edward Rowe of Red Blue Games, where he talks about his upcoming game, Sparklight. Sparklight was featured at an ID at Xbox open house selection at PAX West this past year. It's a beautiful sprite-based game that echoes of nostalgic vibes for A Link to the Past. It has some procedurally generated elements like Rogue Legacy. I have a code sitting on my, my hard drive. I'm ready to check it out, but I'm under embargo so i'll be talking about it next week but enjoy this interview he even name drops something that'll be very very familiar to xbox gamers which is pretty darn cool that's it for me everybody enjoy the interview thank you for listening and have a fantastic week of gaming and i'll see you next time all right, ladies and gents, we are very fortunate today to be joined by Edward Rowe of Red Blue Games out in Durham, North Carolina. Edward, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of the Xbox Expansion Pass. No problem. We've got you here to talk on XEP about your upcoming game, Sparklight. It releases November 14th on all platforms. It's featured in ID at Xbox 2019's Open House. Tell me the elevator pitch for Sparklight, and then we can get into the nitty-gritty. Sure. So Sparklight is a beautiful pixel art. Uh, top-down adventure game, action-adventure, set in a procedurally generated world called Geodia, where you play as Ada, who is a genius engineer who's crash-landed and is trying to find her way through the world so she can get back home. And it looks to me, so I'm looking at these trailers. I'm I'm looking at the the reveals and the stuff that goes more in-depth. You talk about your hero being... uh, kind of a genius, I'm noticing some crafting in there, and that you've taken inspiration from games like uh, A Link to the Past and Rogue Legacy with the procedural generation. How do you kind of find your own art style and set yourself apart from those games uh, and still kind of pay homage to the nostalgic fans? Yeah, sure. So the the finding the um, the balance between Rogue Legacy and Zelda and sort of a roguelike on, a, on an adventure game like Zelda was difficult the inspirations from the from Zelda certainly came in the pixel art and the perspective, um, but also in the adventure gameplay that we wanted, uh, the adventure style of like feeling like you're in this world that you want to explore and check out and see and figure out what it's about. The aesthetic, you sort of mentioned the aesthetic. We knew we wanted, so we knew we wanted to keep it kind of cartoony, not too high definition. But we knew we wanted it top down because top down, or it wouldn't. I don't know whether to call it top down or not. We call it top down, but it's not like truly top. Like an isometric viewpoint. Yeah, you could call it isometric sort of. But Zelda, you know, the original Zelda, Link to the Past, I should say, or even the original, is like very much top down in this mm-hmm. like pseudo, not quite real world too. The way the bottom walls slant down and in, it's kind of weird. But. Um, mm-hmm. The, to, to achieve that in a modern game was actually pretty hard, and, and they did a really great job. <laughs> the Link to the Past perspective is like a, quite an achievement. It's hard to look back and know how they did it back then. But, the, but getting the perspective was difficult because we didn't want to put gameplay behind walls and things like that. There's also a struggle with artists because artists will want to draw everything side on because it just looks better when you're not looking at the top of somebody's head. Sure. Sure. So anyway, that was a challenge for sure. Um, uh, and and it was, so we were always fighting with our artists like, yeah, that's good. But like tilt it up a little bit more, tilt it up a little more because we think that the top down makes for a better uh, combat experience. And for, for listeners not you know who haven't seen the game yet, one, I encourage you to check it out because the art style is beautiful, bright, sprawling like pixels. Uh, everything seems to be jumping out, out at you in that kind of Zelda-esque fashion. It's gorgeous. But you're telling me you had to talk to the artists to kind of get them to to adjust the way that the, that the player kind of views the combat in the game? You could call it that. The That is kind of the, the gist of it is... The player's attacks are hard to define when it's on. I know you probably remember this from like playing, uh, if you played any old school like arcade beat 'em ups or something. Mm-hmm. When you're, or like you know, a new version of Castle Crashers actually, mm-hmm. um, you're on this 2D plane going up and down, and it's hard to tell like, am I in line with this guy? Am I gonna? If I'm just off, up on the screen, like we're just not quite side by side am i going to sure. hit him or not right yeah and exactly when it's top down all those things are a little more clear so we tried to like just push and it also breaks the illusion if some things are in one perspective and other things are in another so mm-hmm. yeah that was a challenge 
and you guys are creating these worlds, this world of Geodia. It's procedurally generated, uh, but you've still got to guide your player towards certain objectives and, then, and, and still stay true to that art style. Uh, how do you go about kind of creating an engine or a world that, that, that is procedurally generated and yet drives your player towards an endgame or towards the boss without being under or overpowered? So I think the the best answer to that is that we we don't really just want to guide you straight to the boss. And so the objective of the game is to explore. So the guiding them was more of trying to encourage them to explore on a like higher level than like the aesthetics of the world. Everything should contribute to getting players to explore and to enjoy exploring. There comes a point where you do want to go to the boss. Like once you're strong enough, you want to fight the boss. But initially, you should lose to the boss and have to try to get you want to try to get stronger. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, um, I mean, we get rewards for exploring side content, and that in and of itself is kind of an encouragement. And then when you do want to fight the boss, we have there's a, a patch that you can get to augment your map uh, so that the boss shows up on there as an icon, and you can sort of find him that way. In the next playthrough, or is it because it is a roguelike, it, it like is, you're expected to die? So you can only equip your patches from town. So if you find the patch in the world, you would have to wait until you're back in town to equip it. I see, okay. Um, okay. Uh, and there are other patches that you also get. Uh, you, there's these, these are the sort of sparklight we call them sparklight patches that have a unique effect like showing bosses on your map. But there's also basic patches that are um, bronze, silver, gold. They can be upgraded, and they are more basic stats like uh, health and maximum health and attack mm-hmm. power. Sure, sure. Well, you're you're driving players towards bosses, but not right away, which makes sense. And we got a few listener questions that kind of go in with that. Uh, this one comes from Blaze Knight, and he says, uh, how does our hero go about like interacting with the world? Uh, of course, traversing battling, and battling enemies, like as we talked about, but crafting seems to be important. Also, you know, as you're, you're building your character, you want to be crafting certain weapons, it looks like? Interesting. Like, <laughs> we, uh, it's funny, the conclusions people, you know, our imagination is left to. Yeah, there's, correct. There's me. a lot yeah, left yeah. to. Correct. Let's hear it. You are using this multi-tool. It is a multi-tool that can transform into a hammer. It's a wrench. We call it the multi mm. And it is your one melee weapon for the game. You do upgrade it, but it doesn't. It, mm-hmm. there's no other weapons. Well, how does your hero go about, you know, interacting with the world? Is there a lot of dialogue? Are we talking about lots of lots of little fights before boss right. fights? Right. Um, well, there are uh, sort of mini puzzles, mini challenges scattered throughout the world. Um, the procedurally generated world has uh, more less eventful rooms and then more eventful rooms. And in those eventful rooms, you'll find puzzles and traps, trap challenges like dodging fireballs while crossing crumbling platform mm-hmm. chasms uh, and and then you'll get rewarded for that you get sparklight and then you can take that sparklight back to town and improve your character from from town all right so that's the third or fourth time you said sparklight what do you mean when sparklight what is sparklight within this lore probably i'll say sparklight a lot today mm-hmm. um it is sparklight is the life force of the planet it's a mineral mm-hmm. it's a mineral that's sort of a gem that can be burned for maximal power, but it mm-hmm. pollutes the world and it destroys the sparklight in the process. And then there is, um, you can harness what we call harness it, which is to take the energy from the sparklight without destroying the sparklight. And the good guys are fueled on sparklight that they've harnessed. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sort of clean energy kind of thing. And then mm-hmm. the bad guy, the Baron, all of his machines are, burned consuming sparklight powered and that's sort of what's causing the world to fall apart is his corruption caused from burning sparklight interesting okay that's that's making more sense now a couple other questions that i I just have to ask you there are many worlds and scenes to explore in the game this this question comes from our friend garrett bland uh he wants to know is the procedural generation is it linear based leveling or is there like a central hub world i know you mentioned uh town at one point does this mean you have to fast travel other places uh, how, what's traversal like moving through your world? Well, so it has a hub of town. As a town, the town is a floating city, and it's called the refuge. 
and it's where the inhabitants of the world have fled to escape the pollution and corruption that's happening down on the main world. Um, the main world, every time you die, there's sort of an earthquake called a, sh- a fracture that mm-hmm. shifts the world around. Um, and that earthquake is a result of the mining that the Baron, Baron's mining operation. Um, mm-hmm. And so town is where you're building it you're building it up, you find Sparklight, and you improve the town, thereby improving your own gear and powers, and then also building up this town. Um, you find people out in the world that come back to the town and mm-hmm. do, and have they help you when they're back in town, um, mm-hmm. different ways they help you. They, they, of course, most of those come with a quest that you have to do in order to get them back to town. As any good game yes. should, lots of questing. Yeah. Uh, the, the, quest, the questing is interesting because it, it was a challenge to find quests that were sort of unique to what our game can do. Mm-hmm. And they have to be stuff that, like, we didn't want cross-playthroughs, so every quest you sort of do when you're down in the world. Um, you don't find anybody that says do something and you have to do it over subsequent, like, lots of different plays or anything. Interesting. Um, now, the, the, I, I did want to... The, the, yeah, the world itself, though, has... The foothills is a biome that is... Gener- there's, there's five biomes in the game, five different biomes. And the foothills is sort of the central one. And all the other zones are offshoots of that. And that is sort of a hub. You might look at that as a hub. So there's no fast travel right now. And that might be something we're going to consider post-launch if it's something that we get a lot of feedback on. We have different mm-hmm. ways that we might achieve it. Um, you land into the town. You you leave town on a hot air balloon and land in the world. So we might offer different landing zones or something like that. Sure. Now, so you're talking about this this incredible world of Geodia. You're talking about sparklight energy, and you're have you have all these gameplay mechanics that come with it. You have obviously have to have lore within your world in order to kind of build gameplay around. Did the lore? creation come first or did the gameplay come first during the development process for red blue the lore certainly came first i think the game we knew the rough gameplay we knew it was going to be an action adventure which puts you down a a fairly well-known path and then it was a matter of what world is going to be different what world have people not seen before and what is going to help us tell the story that that we want to tell um, so I think early on the sort of steampunk, what did uh, somebody called it? Color, colorful steampunk? Colorful steampunk? I guess. Colorful steampunk Zelda with guns and gadgets. Yeah, that was it. Colorful steampunk Zelda with guns and gadgets is what Cliff Wazinski called it. Now that's your tagline right there. <laughs> Who? Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. I, I, I cut I, you off at a key point. Cliff, Who said that? Cliff Wazinski. You, he, yeah. Well, Xbox fans will know that name quite well, as will PC fans. <laughs> All right, you, you name dropped. Yeah. What do you, I got to ask, where'd that one come from? Well, we did a contract with um, his company on Lawbreakers. Mm, very so cool. he he was generous enough to to play test Sparklight early on and gave us some feedback. So okay, so that begs the question: How long have you guys been working on Sparklight? It comes out November fourteenth, twenty nineteen. I mean, we're looking at it on all major platforms. How long have you been working on it? It has been about four years, wow. maybe five, four or five, four, something like that. Four or five years coming down to the to to the wire, it seems. And you you obviously mentioned earlier, you know, it's something that you would patch in later or could patch in later for for fast travel. Is it something that you are considering like DLC for expansions? Uh, what in the world of of kind of ID at Xbox or indie game development? How do you go about planning this roadmap or potential roadmap moving forward? It is a challenge, no question about that. Um, figuring out what... I mean, you have to design the game around stuff like that because you don't know... I mean, the game lends... It's, it would be slightly challenging for us to add a zone. I think we might be able to do it. But mm-hmm. because the game has a sort of sequential nature, adding a zone doesn't make sense. It just like in, inserts a boss <laughs> in along like your your progression... And um, so, you know, we'd have to do like a void zone or some kind of like bonus area, side area kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which could be possible. I don't think that I, I don't know about DLC specifically. We don't have any agreements with that for like our publisher or anything like that. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's off the table. I'd have to sort of research the engineering side of it to see if it's like literally not possible. But I, th- I think it should be 
possible. But right now, our plan is to do some initial patches to improve user experience. And we do have a sort of rough roadmap, sort of arbitrary, but also sort of laid out in terms of what are the like big fires to put out. And I think um, one of the big ones, for example, is accessibility. We don't have a lot of accessibility features in the game, like bit, like letting users change their font size or slow down the way that, like, there's no reason users shouldn't be allowed to slow down how fast t- text gets printed out. Um, mm-hmm. There's just some things we can do to help everybody experience the game. Um, so that's a pretty high priority. I, I honestly wish we could have prioritized that before launch, but just other things just take priority, so... Well, that has to bring up the realities of being an indie game developer and, and publishing on certain platforms, having simultaneous launches across you know multiple systems. And I would imagine that you, you have to balance a lot of the real-world needs of, of paying the bills, also with getting out the product and the vision that you would have for it. Can you talk to me a bit about what it's like to be part of the specifically the ID at Xbox program and bringing, that, bringing your vision to Xbox? Uh, well, ID at Xbox has been awesome for us. From the beginning, actually, uh, X, Microsoft was really was helpful to us. They have a, or they used to have a thing called BizSpark, where they would give a bunch of their licenses to starting businesses, um, which was a cool way to try some software. Uh, Windows, I think Visual Studio is in that, so that was helpful initially. The Idea Xbox program, they featured us at a press-only event. I think that was the Loft event at GDC last year. Yeah, last year. That was really great. Gave us some good coverage from a lot of cool uh, outlets. A lot got a lot of people to play the game, mm-hmm. and in general, it's they, they have been they've been very helpful to work with and very friendly. So I I'm a big fan of their outreach. It's it's cool. Um, That's... The, the 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 business in general is is tough for sure, and it's been a really tough journey. This required a lot of help from a lot of a lot of these programs and people well i'm glad to see your vision is going to be coming to gamers and it's on november 14th uh that it becomes available the game is sparklight uh, you can catch it on all your microsoft platforms and if anyone listening has has other systems i believe ps4 switch as well correct ps4 and pc and yeah pc and mac excellent well, before I let you go, I must ask you one more time. We've gone through a ton of things. Any any last thoughts or, or messages towards listeners as a reason to check out Sparklight or something you're looking forward to? I think that I'm I'm most excited for players to see the world and all the fun characters. Uh, I think it's going to be a, a unique like vision of, of the world and a unique experience that most people who like older games are going to like to check out, but um, I'm also hoping that this is going to expose more players to sort of procedural gameplay because we're really trying to make it something everyone wants to play. It has what we call assisted co-op where a second player can play as a robot companion. So, oh, yeah. really? That's something I, I missed in that. So you can sit down with two people couch co-op style? Yes, couch co-op, yes. That is super yep. cool. You have to, well... You have to unlock it. A little, little nugget of information <laughs> there. I like it. I like it. Well, Edward, I can't thank you enough for, for joining me today on XEP and for talking about Sparklight. And uh, gamers can check it out in all different platforms on November 14th. Uh, you guys can be found on Twitter at RedBlueGames. That's correct. Well, guys, let Edward know what you think of Sparklight when you're able to. And uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Edward, have a great day, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me.